Brothers and sisters, let us now come before the Lord and ask his blessing upon our study and application of the Word of God this morning. Let us pray. Father in heaven, would you bless us now as we come to your most holy word? Give us eyes to see. Give us minds that understand. Give us hearts that believe what it is that you have revealed to us concerning all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, uh, to be strong in faith. Help us, Lord, to see you in the pages of Holy Scripture and to cling to you, taking comfort in this wonderful promise that you are always with us. Lord, help us to believe your word and to live according to it for our good and the glory of your name. And all of God's people say, Amen. Before we go to Ephesians chapter 1 and read verses 3 through 14, I would like to address the catechism question uh, for the week. Uh, We will be considering Baptist catechism number 14 uh, this week. It is a very important and uh, a very appropriate question and answer. Uh, Given the circumstances that we are in, Baptist Catechism 14 says, what are God's works of providence? And the answer is that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Um, We do have this promise in the pages of Holy Scripture. Uh, It's there contained within the Noahic Covenant um, that God will preserve uh, the created order until Christ returns. Um, There will be seed time and harvest. Uh, There will be the passing of days and months. Uh, Things will go on in an orderly fashion. And so that does provide a bit of comfort to us, does it not? Uh, To know that God is the one who preserves all things. He is the one who governs all of his creatures. Uh, In other words, those things sometimes seem out of control. They are not out of God's control, but rather he is working out his decree continuously. He has a reason for doing what it is that he does. And so there is comfort for us uh, in this teaching. I do plan to uh, put out another catechesis episode uh, this Lord's Day evening. That is my objective. I'm a little behind on a lot of things uh, this week as we have had to sort of uh, reinvent how it is that we um, do things as a church given the circumstances. But my objective is to still get that out to you to provide more teaching to you on this particular catechism question. I hope that you listen in and are edified by it. We come now to Ephesians chapter 1. The text uh, that we will focus in upon is verses 3 through 6. But again, I would like to read verses 3 through 14, uh, for these verses do belong together. Hear now the word of God. Paul the Apostle uh, wrote to the Ephesians, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Dear friends, I do understand that some of you listening in today are longing to hear a word of encouragement given the unusual, difficult, and unsettling situation that we find ourselves in. And please know that words of encouragement are on the way. Uh, They will be delivered in this sermon, but I would ask that you be patient with me. My desire is to first make some introductory remarks concerning our passage for today, and after that, when we move more carefully through verses 3 through 6, there will be plenty of encouragement to be found. Uh, The truths conveyed here, brothers and sisters, are deep and substantial truths. And I do believe if we pay careful attention to what God reveals to us here in this passage, the encouragement that will be found here will be real encouragement, lasting encouragement. As I have said, in this lesson today, we will focus our attention only upon verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1. But as we do, it is important to know that verses 3 through 14, which we have just read, belong together. In fact, if we were to look at this passage in the Greek, which is the language in which Paul originally wrote, we would notice that this is one very long sentence. In other words, there are no periods at all in the Greek text in verses 3 through 14. And some, when hearing this, wrongly assume that Paul was a bad writer, uh, that he was guilty of the literary sin of run-on sentences. But really, this view is misinformed. We must recognize that this letter was meant to be read aloud within the church, and that Paul wrote with great skill, utilizing literary devices common in his day, which signaled to the reader when to take breaths when reading aloud, but without the use of periods. And not only did the structure of the Greek text help the reader to read well, taking breaths at the appropriate time so as to put emphasis upon certain themes, it also helped the listener to listen well. I'll spare you the details, the technical details, that is. But for now, please rest assured that when this passage, that is verses 3 through 14, was read aloud in the Greek language, the audience heard a well-crafted, a majestic, and poignant opening statement in this letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And what is the point of verses 3 through 14? Where does the emphasis lie? Well, Paul begins his letter with majestic praise. He enthusiastically blesses God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is eager to give glory to the triune God for all that he has done for us in and through Jesus the Christ. 
In this opening passage, which runs from verses 3 through 14, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are extolled for their unique and particular contribution to our salvation in Jesus the Christ. In verses 3 through 6a, God the Father is praised. For he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In verses 6b through 10, the Son is praised, for he, in the Incarnation, has redeemed us by his blood. And in verses 11 through 14, the Holy Spirit is praised, for by him we were sealed, he being the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so verses 3 through 14 give all glory to God. More specifically, they give glory to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for our redemption in Christ Jesus. For in him, that is to say, in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. What a marvelous passage uh, this is. This opening passage is important for it sets the tone for Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And what is the purpose of Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Clearly, the purpose of this letter is to give all glory to God. Paul's aim is to move the Christian to see how rich we are in Christ Jesus and to exhort us to live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. I think it is worth noting at this juncture that the book of Ephesians is divided neatly into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal. They teach us about what God has done for us by sending the Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 are filled with practical application. They instruct us to live lives pleasing to the Lord based upon what God has done for us in and through Jesus the Christ. The purpose of Paul's letter, which I have just said is to give all glory to God by showing how incredibly rich we are in Christ Jesus, and the two-part division of this letter, which I have just said is first about doctrine or teaching, and then about practical application, is easily observed at the transition between chapters 3 and 4. In three fourteen through 21, we find the conclusion to the doctrinal half of Paul's epistle. And I want for you to listen carefully to his concluding remarks, for they are instructive. Beginning in 3.14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so I wonder if you caught it. Paul's stated purpose as he concludes this first half of his epistle, this portion intended to teach, his stated purpose is to give all glory to God, and his prayer is that God would grant us, the Christian, the strength to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is the thing that he is driving at. His desire is that we would comprehend all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that we would comprehend how rich we are in him, that we would comprehend the great love that he has lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. Paul's stated objective for the first half of his epistle is to help us comprehend, that is, to catch or grasp something. But notice that in the same sentence, Paul acknowledges that this thing that he is trying to help us grasp does, in fact, surpass knowledge. In other words, though this thing may be known truly, and though we might forever grow in our comprehension of it, it cannot be understood exhaustively, for it is, in fact, too deep, too wide, and too high for us. And again, what is the thing that Paul wants us to lay a hold of? His desire is that we comprehend the depths of love that have been showered upon us by God through Christ Jesus. Friends, I have found that sometimes even the people of God struggle to comprehend God's love for them in Christ Jesus. And this may be especially true in times of difficulty. God's love for us in Christ Jesus is so great that we will never be able to comprehend it fully. His love for us never changes. How could it? He determined to set his love upon us, not because we were deserving, but by his grace alone. But sometimes we struggle with comprehension. Sometimes the things we experience in this world, our own fleshly emotions, and even the evil one himself, will say, God does not love you. And in moments of weakness, we might even begin to entertain those lies. I do believe that Ephesians will serve as a remedy to this spiritual malady, for Paul's purpose is to strengthen our faith so that we might comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. But notice that his purpose in writing is not only to inform us about the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, but to also move us to live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. I want you to look very briefly now at Ephesians 4.1 and see how Paul opens the second half of his epistle, which is about holy living. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I would like for you to notice two things about the ordering of this epistle, and of Paul's other letters too. First, 
Notice that Paul begins with teaching sound doctrine, and then he exhorts the Christian to walk worthy before him, saying, therefore, in other words, based upon what is true, live this way. And the order is significant. First doctrine, then application. And doctrine is always practical, friends. Our ability to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord corresponds to and depends upon our knowledge of his word. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul's view was that true transformation takes place in the life of the Christian through the renewal of the mind. And so pay close attention to the truths that are set forth in the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Allow these doctrines or teachings to transform your mind. Receive them as the word of God. Believe them as true. And I know for certain that believing these doctrines will be used by the Lord to empower you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First doctrine and then application. Secondly, notice that Paul begins with gospel and then afterwards presents us with God's law. When I say gospel, I am referring to the good news of all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. By gospel, I mean the good news that God, by his grace alone and by no merit of our own, has set his love upon us, has reconciled us to himself, has forgiven us all our sins, and has given us life everlasting. The gospel says, look at what God has done for you. And by law, I mean that which God requires of us. Gospel says, this is what God has done for you. Law says, this is what you are to do before God. And here I am saying that the order of things is of great significance. First, Paul presents the gospel, and then he gives us law. If God's love for us were dependent upon our obedience, friends, law would come first and then gospel. But then the gospel would be no gospel at all. But because God's love is a free gift, law follows gospel. We obey God. We worship and serve him, not to earn his love, but because he has determined to set his love upon us first. God has graciously called us to himself, and now out of gratitude, And with love in our hearts, we then walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The order of things is very important here in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and in his other writings. First, gospel, and then law. I have said much now about Paul's purpose for writing. His aim is to give all glory to God and to awaken within us an awareness of the great love with which he has loved us in Christ Jesus. If I were to identify a central theme in this epistle, it would be the one that Baugh sets forth in his commentary on Ephesians, unity in the inaugurated new creation. That is the central theme, unity in the inaugurated new creation. Friends, Christ, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, has accomplished not only your salvation, But he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He has earned not only the forgiveness of your sins, but glory in the new heavens and earth. 
Through Christ, the new creation will be ushered in. Only through Christ, by faith in him and through union with him, will anyone enter this new creation. And this new creation has been inaugurated through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is here now. Indeed, it is true what Paul says elsewhere. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is 2 Corinthians 5.17. And Paul is eager to see Christians, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, husband and wife, parents and children, to live at peace, given their union in Christ Jesus and their shared inheritance in him. That is the theme of the book of Ephesians. Paul is eager to awaken within us a knowledge or comprehension of his love for us in Christ Jesus. He is eager to show us how we are in fact one in Christ Jesus, how we are partakers of this new creation which Christ has earned. It is the new creation that will be here in fullness when he returns in the new heavens and the new earth, but it is here now by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a marvelous theme that we find here in this letter to the Ephesians. So let us now turn our attention to Ephesians 1.3. And as we go there, you will quickly see that all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus are rooted in God's decision to set his love upon us from all eternity. Notice that in verse 3, Paul blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I have previously said, the focus of verses 3 through 6 is upon the Father and the particular role that he has played in our redemption. And when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is in essence saying, May the Father be praised. And notice that the Father is here called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, if we are in Christ Jesus, he is our Father too. But here, Paul's concern is to emphasize the relationship between God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. For God is our Father only if we are united to Jesus the Son. In the Old Testament, we can find many instances where the name of God is blessed by his people. The common saying is, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. 1 Samuel 25, 32. But here and elsewhere in Paul's other writings, the saying is adapted so as to emphasize not the nation of Israel, but Jesus the Christ. For it is through our union with Christ and not our union with ethnic Israel that God is our Father. He is the God not only of the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And why does Paul bless the Father? Well, he blesses the Father because the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. No doubt there are many reasons to bless God's name. But here Paul is focused upon one reason in particular, and it is the greatest of all reasons. He blesses the Father because the Father has, again, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. To be blessed by God is to have God's kindness bestowed upon you. 
But notice that Paul is not referring here to the kindness of God, generally speaking. Instead, he is referring specifically to the kindness that God has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, he is not here referring to the kindness that God shows to all people. Yes, it is true that God is kind to all. He blesses all and that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 45. But Paul is not here referring to that generic blessing which God bestowed upon all, but to the blessing which God has bestowed upon those who are in Christ Jesus, united to him by faith. We're to remember that Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. He is writing not to the world, but to the church of God and to the faithful within it. When Paul uses the pronoun us, he is referring not to the world, but to those who are united to Christ by faith. It is these, the faithful ones who are in Christ Jesus that have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The English word spiritual can easily be misunderstood. Often when we think of things that are spiritual, we think of non-material things, things having to do with the soul of man, heavenly things. And often the word is used in that way in the scriptures. But when Paul uses this Greek word, which is here translated as spiritual, He is referring to those things which are of the Holy Spirit and have, to quote Ba again, their origin and ultimate fulfillment in the high heavenlies which were obtained by the last Adam, the life-giving spirit who is from heaven and in the likeness of whose resurrection body believers will be conformed in resurrection to spiritual bodies. These spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus are of the Spirit of God. That is the point that Paul is making. These are blessings from heaven, which will have their ultimate fulfillment in heaven, that is to say, the new heavens and earth. And notice what Paul says, God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, the thing we are to recognize here is that in Christ we are rich, In Christ, we are well supplied and have our every need met. These blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus are spiritual. They are of the Spirit and will have their ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and earth. But they are ours now by the power of the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed. Ba notes that the Holy Spirit is himself the link between this world and the new creation so that his presence with the elect is the ultimate blessing and the guarantee of future heavenly blessings. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we have difficulty comprehending the height, the depth, and breadth of God's love for us in Christ Jesus because we are looking at the wrong things for evidence of his love. We tend to look at the things of this world for evidence of God's love for us. Instead, we must look to Christ, to his cross, and to the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that he has lavished upon us to comprehend his love. Never has God promised us health, wealth, and prosperity, friends. If you have believed that lie, 
the lie that he has promised these things, then it is no wonder that you feel as if God has failed you when any one of these things or all of them at once is lacking. We live in a fallen world, friends. Poverty, sickness, and death touch even the faithful. But what has God promised? Well, he has promised us many things. He has promised that in Christ there is the forgiveness of sins, that if you are in him, he will keep you and bring you safely to your heavenly home, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised us many things, friends. But he has lavished upon us spiritual blessings, blessings that are wrought by the Spirit of God, blessings that have their ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. But these blessings, they are the greatest of all blessings. They are ours now. They are ours now by the work of the Holy Spirit. To illustrate that this is what Paul had in mind when he spoke of being blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, I want for you to think of the sufferings that Paul had endured as a faithful servant of Christ Jesus before writing these words. You have to know something, of course, about the life of Paul, and I will not rehearse all of it for you, but Paul suffered as a faithful servant of Christ Jesus. He was beaten, he was ill, he was shipwrecked, he was persecuted by his own kinsmen, he was cast out. Brothers and sisters, Paul suffered And he wrote these words, this letter to the Ephesians, not from the pleasant palace, but from prison. He wrote these words from prison. And so considered from a worldly perspective, Paul was not blessed, not at all. In fact, some might say that he was cursed and forsaken by God if they were to look only at external earthly things. But Paul knew better, didn't he? As he sat in that prison cell and as he considered his life of suffering as a servant of Christ Jesus, his impulse was not to complain against God. His impulse was not to question whether or not God really loved him, but to bless God, instead saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This, friends, is something that you might need to think about. If your tendency is to look upon your life and the difficulties in it and to question God's love for you, perhaps you're looking at the wrong things for evidence of his love for you. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Look to your treasure, which is in heaven. Look to those things, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, and see that God has lavished his love upon you. Another way to get at this principle is to ask you the simple question, where is your treasure, friends? Where is your treasure? And therefore, where is your heart? If your heart and treasure are wrapped up in the things of this earth, you will be undone when the blessings of this earth elude you. But if your treasure and heart are in heaven, then never will you be undone. For those spiritual and heavenly blessings are yours in Christ Jesus, and nothing, not even death, can take them from you. In fact, death will only be the gateway by which you come to possess these blessings ever more fully. Nothing can take these blessings away from you in Christ Jesus. In verse 4, Paul identifies the reason or principal cause of our being blessed in Christ Jesus, saying, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why are we blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Why 
has God the Father shown us this kindness? Why has he set his favor upon us in this way? I think this is the question that Paul is here getting at. And I want for you to pay careful attention to what Paul says. The reason is not rooted in us, but in God. The text says, even as he, referring to the Father, chose us, that is to say, the believer, in him, a reference to Christ, before the foundation of the world. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, is what Paul says. The passage is, in fact, very clear. The thing that has caused us to be blessed in Christ Jesus is God's choice of us in eternity past. Again, he, God, chose us, the believer, to be in him that is in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world, that is, before the world was even created. This is the doctrine of election, clearly stated. The word translated chose in verse 4 is eklegomai. It means to choose, to select, to pick out, to elect. It actually appears 22 times in the New Testament, always with reference to the selection of people or things out of a group. For example, uh, John 15, 6, Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It's the same Greek word there. In John 15, 9, Jesus continued saying, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And in 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, saying, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. When all of the texts that speak of God's election of some to salvation in Christ Jesus are considered, It is clear that his choice to elect some and to pass over others was rooted not in the goodness or deservedness of the one chosen, but in the gracious and sovereign will of God alone. So, friends, it is clear that there is no room for boasting, therefore, in those who have been chosen. There is only room for humble appreciation and gratitude for God's free and unmerited favor. This doctrine of election is both humbling and it is also deeply comforting. It is comforting for it reveals that the root and cause of our salvation in Christ Jesus is God's goodness and faithfulness and not ours. We did not merit our election. We did not earn our salvation And we cannot lose it, therefore, for it was a gift from the beginning. God will surely finish the work that he has began within us. He will bring it to completion. This doctrine of election is humbling, but it is also deeply comforting. Now, as we continue on in verse 4, notice that God the Father's choice of us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world was for a purpose— It was so that we should be holy and blameless before him, the text says. This was the goal of the election of particular believers, that they should stand before God holy and blameless. Holiness has a reference to our moral purity. Blamelessness has reference to our 
freedom from guilt as transgressors of God's holy law. Both things are given to the one who has faith in Christ. And the moment we place our faith in him, we are washed clean from our sins. Christ's shed blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we are also declared not guilty, for Christ has paid the price for our sins, and his righteousness is given to us. This was the purpose of God's election of the believer, that they stand holy and blameless before him. And is it not also God's purpose to sanctify us? That is, to teach us to actually live holy lives and keep his law out of gratitude for all that is ours in Christ Jesus? The answer is, of course it is. And this is why Paul will soon urge us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. God's purpose for electing us is that he would make us holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, but also holy and blameless, sanctified progressively throughout the Christian life, that we would walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In verses 5 through 6, we learn even more about God's election of us in Christ Jesus. A different word is used here to describe our election. Instead of the word chose, we find the word predestined. Picking up now at the very end of verse 4, we read, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. The word predestined means to foreordain. It means to decide beforehand or to determine something ahead of time. And this is what God has done. He, from all eternity, before he created the heavens and earth, determined to do something for his elect. Verses 4b through 6 are very instructive. In a very short space, they reveal a lot to us about God's predeterminations. One, here is revealed the motive of God's predestinating. The motive is his love. We read, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. You probably should know that there is some debate over where to place the phrase in love in our English translations. Some translations tag in love onto the end of the previous sentence so that it reads that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love would then be a reference to the desired conduct of the believer. The Christian is to live a holy life characterized by love. And while this is indeed true, I do believe that the ESV has it right when it makes the phrase in love the opening of the sentence found in verse 5. God's love was what motivated him to predestinate some to adoption as sons. This is certainly consistent with what that most famous verse, John 3.16, reveals when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What moved God to send the Son so that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life? It was God's love. That is what John 3.16 says, and that is here what Ephesians 1.4 and following has to say, in love, we are told, we have been predestined to adoption as sons. Two, 
Here is revealed the goal of God's predestinating, our adoption as sons. Again, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Not only did he choose us so that we would be holy and blameless, more than that, he predestined us to be his beloved children. Later in Ephesians, Paul will remind us that by nature, that is to say, according to our natural birth, we were children of wrath. But here we learn that God determined ahead of time to reconcile us to himself and to adopt us as sons. The women in the church should refrain from taking offense at the phrase, as sons. Uh, This thought that all of God's people, male and female, have been adopted as sons is actually very important to Paul's argumentation in this letter. By nature, we belong to another family and had another father, that is to say, the father of lies. But Christ, the eternal Son of God, came in the flesh, and he reconciled us to God. And in Christ, through union with him, we are one, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, yes, even male and female, are one in Christ Jesus. We stand in him and before him on equal plane. That is Paul's point, I think, when he calls Christians, male and female, sons of God. He is here emphasizing the fact that in him, in Christ, we are one and that we stand before God on an equal plane. Three, Here is revealed the mediation. All of this was predestined to be accomplished through Jesus the Christ. How would we be reconciled to God? How would we be adopted as his children? Well, the answer here is through Christ and his finished work on the cross. Yes, even the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was predestined. And this is exactly what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, saying to the Jews, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even the death of Christ was predestined. From before the creation of the world, God determined to save sinners, to reconcile them to himself through Jesus the Christ. Four, the principal cause of God's predestinating is revealed. All of this was determined according to the purpose of his will. Why did God choose whom he chose? Why did God do what he did? Much remains mysterious to us, brothers and sisters, but one thing we know for sure, God was not responding to or reacting to something in the creature He predetermined to reconcile some to himself through the work of Christ and by faith in his name. And this was done according to the purpose of his will. This theme will return again and again in this passage and in the passages that follow. Five, the result of God's predestinating is here revealed. All of this, we are told, is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Friends, God's grace is truly glorious. His grace is remarkable. How marvelous it is to think that God would set his love upon sinners such as you and me. Far from being a reason to complain against God, the doctrine of election or predestination should move us to praise. 
to think that God Almighty would set his love upon any of the children of men who have rebelled against his most holy name is marvelous indeed. Christian, I know that many of you were wanting to hear an encouraging word this morning given the unsettling situation that we find ourselves in. And frankly, I couldn't think of a more encouraging message than the one that is delivered to us here in Ephesians. Everything in this world is fleeting, transient, momentary. This is always the case, but from time to time something will disrupt the rhythm of our lives and remind us that it is so. Everything in this world is temporary, changing, and unstable from our perspective. But God does not change. He is not fleeting, transient, or momentary. To the contrary, he is constant, immutable, eternal. And if you are in Christ Jesus, that is, if you have turned from your sins and have put your trust in him, it is because God, in eternity past, determined to set his love upon you. No, it was not because of some merit that he foresaw in you. It was not because he foresaw that you would believe, but it was according to the purpose of his will. And in Christ, you are rich. In Christ, you are well supplied. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And even now, God has bestowed upon you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, you have been made holy and blameless. In Christ, you have the adoption as sons. And friends, here is why the Christian is able to bless God and to praise him for his grace, even while the world around us shakes and totters. Our trust is not in the transient things of this world, but in God who is unchanging. And our treasure is not here either, where moth and rust destroy, but it is in heaven. And our confidence is not in man, not in ourselves, nor in any other. But our confidence is in God, who is ever faithful. Friends, if you are listening in this morning and do not yet know Christ— If you, in this time of uncertainty, have come to see how temporary and unstable life on this earth is, and if you would like to know the love of God, to have the forgiveness of sins, the adoption as sons, and the sure hope of life everlasting, then turn from your sins, confess them to God, and ask his forgiveness, and trust only in Jesus the Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. If the Lord in this moment is drawing you to himself, If he is calling you to faith in Christ, then do not be silent. Please call me or some other faithful pastor in your area so that you might profess your faith through the waters of baptism and grow in Christ within his church, his beloved bride. For those who have faith, uh, this time of uncertainty is a time of testing. Do you really believe what the scriptures say, friends? Do you believe it to the point that it produces hope and peace within your heart, enabling you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Christian, God loves you. To comprehend this, look not to the things of this world, but to the risen Christ and to the spiritual blessings that are yours in him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your most holy name. I pray, O Lord, that you would help us as your children, as your adopted and beloved children, 
to live for the glory of your name. Father, we pray for the advancement of your righteous kingdom. Help us to be ready, O Lord, with the gospel, that we might tell others of all that Christ has done for us, so that they too might have the hope of life everlasting. Father, help us to live in such a way where people notice and even ask for a reason, for the hope that is within us. Father, we do pray that sinners would come to repentance, that they would be joined to your church, that they too would live for the glory of your name. Father, we ask that you would provide for all of our needs. For those who are sick, I pray that you would raise them up. For those who are well, I do pray that you would protect them in this time from illness. Father, help us to notice needs that are around us and to meet them with the love of Christ. Help us to truly care for one another, O Lord. Father, we do ask that we would also be found living in obedience to your revealed will. Father, help us to be kind to one another, patient with one another. Help us to be gentle and quick to forgive. Lord, we do pray that we as your people, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and made holy, having been given the righteousness of Christ, that we would in fact live holy and righteous lives before you. Help us young and old, I pray. Help us to obey you in thought, word, and deed. Lord, we do ask that you would forgive us for the sins that we have committed. Father, help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us, Lord, day by day in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. This is our prayer, O Lord. Father, go with us now and help us from this day forward to better comprehend what is ours in Christ Jesus that if we are in him, that we would be sure of your love for us. It's in the name of Christ that we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.